Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Delta X podcast with Ellen Shu. These are conversations with changemakers, innovators, and self-starters who have made their mark on the world at a young age. Breaking down the journeys of those who are changing the status quo and building the future today. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Welcome back to Delta X Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Chu, and today I'm really lucky to have a mentor of mine and also a mentor of many others come on the show. Um, if you listened in on previous episodes, you know that Delta X Podcast is all about technology, startups, and innovation. And luckily for us, Nikon has experience in all three, as you'll see and hear about. He discovered he had a talent for electronics at um, nine years old, and he was the youngest research assistant at India's Department of Defense after which he got a full scholarship to attend Northeastern at 16 years old. He co-founded MedSix, a medtech startup focused on post-operative recovery management, which he is now working on full-time as co-founder and CEO. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, having me here. I noticed from your extensive background that a common theme is using technology to launch ventures and impact lives. And this was started from really early on, right, since you were nine. How did you catch this like entrepreneurship bug, so to say? I think um, what my parents definitely instilled in me at a very young age was a love of reading. So I always, I used to spend my allowance or in uh, growing up in Bangalore, India, we used to call it pocket money. So I used to spend my pocket money on books um, primarily and they themselves, uh, each of them is our doctors. One is a medical doctor, another uh, a PhD. So very um, much into more academic education, but definitely they instilled in me and my brother a love for reading. So I started reading a lot of STEM books, so science, technology, engineering books, and specifically what really interested me were biographies, right? And um, stories of innovators, scientists, and um, inventors, and specifically stories of um, Edison, right? So um, Edison, Einstein, childhood heroes really and a little later Steve Jobs but those stories drew me in and uh, really inspired me because in Edison's case right he started experimenting doing science experiments when he was a kid right um, in a in a railway carriage um, I think when he but he had a job as um, a newspaper boy like someone who sells newspapers and that got me really interested into science, into experiments, into technology. So I would say what, um, and he kind of became my inspiration, right? But uh, what, um, and how that originated was definitely a love for reading, which my parents instilled. And then it was kind of my own journey to investigate like different topics, different books, and find a few heroes um, from that, like people I could uh, emulate. And we did have resources in our neighborhood too. So where I grew up in North Bangalore, so a lot of defense institutions. So we have the Indian Space Research Organization there, uh, a lot of the Indian Armed Forces. So the Border Security Force, the Air Force, and um, also the Army. And we just had this huge concentration of research labs and primarily gearing towards, uh, geared towards defense. 
And one of my neighbors ran an electronics lab for the border security force and was kind enough to give me access to the lab when I was, I think, seven, eight years old. Initially for the summer, then I started spending just so much time there. So weekdays on the evenings, in the weekends, and I just grew fascinated by all things electronics. And uh, all the students there were um, undergraduate level or graduate level. And I just started soaking up as much as I could. So initially, I didn't have the training in math or physics to understand the textbooks, right? But I very quickly could gather or begin to understand the practical side. So I was definitely started to help the students out, right? So if the professor had stepped out, they're doing a lab experiment, they were stuck, right? And I was like, hey, can I, I've seen this, right? Um, happen 10, 15 times. So I can show you a demo of how this works or answer a few of your questions. And then later, as a result of that, just to understand the math and the physics side, the equations, I ended up on my own through Khan Academy and through other sources, uh -huh. uh, learning that component uh, specifically. So that's how an interest in uh, technology really um, developed for me. And also, you could say scientific innovation uh, generally. Yeah, that's really amazing too, how, you know, reading books really got you inspired and you had so many role models in these different biographies that you've read. Um, I also read Steve Jobs' biography. I thought it was so inspiring and just like, it really changed my mindset about how to look at problems and how to work on really impactful things. So yeah, I haven't read Edison's though, so I'll definitely need to check that out. Um, but I think that's really great how you're able to, you know, uh, foster that at a really young age through your love for reading. Um, and so as I noticed that later on, you know, a few years later, um, you enrolled in university at 16. And as someone who is currently 16, I find that super impressive. Um, so I guess what drove and influenced your decision to kind of accelerate, accelerate your path to, to education and higher yep. education college? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. It's um, so uh, because when I was in that electronics lab and uh, I was very fascinated with the technologies, with electronics, I was picking up. So over the course of a few years, I ended up um, having a role to play in uh, many of the projects that were there. Many of them were uh, national level defense projects and, and a mix of military use cases and civilian use cases. And it ranged from, you know, just uh, train announcement systems at railway stations, automated train announcement systems to an agricultural system for farmers. So you could get your crop prices on your SMS and also control your pumps, your irrigation pumps through SMS. Again, this was early 2010, so 2009, 2010, 2011. So before um, smartphones, right? And uh, especially in a developing country, those technologies came or penetrated way later than um, developed countries. So we were still using, you know, phones with a, keypads where um, you and SMS was the mode of communication, right? Mm -hmm. So we used those technologies and this was in the very early stages of internet of things as well, where you could make anything smart, right? You can make your fridge talk now, you can make your Microsoft and washing machine, everything, communicate with each other, talk. But this was in the very early stages of that, where if you had to make something smart, you needed a small suitcase size system install that, right? You needed modem trans, uh, trans receivers, uh, you needed relays, integrated circuits. And even the sizes of those components 
was uh, fairly large. So very early days of IoT, and this is pre-smartphone. So we created these systems with essentially the technologies we had available um, at that time. And also my math and physics education were becoming much more advanced than my grade at school. So all this led to me advancing um, in my own time of many years ahead of what was being taught um, in school at that time. And it came to a point that I think in seventh grade, I was just too bored to go to school, right? And I kind of gave an ultimatum to my parents, which is, um, I just can't go to school, like not another day, right? It's it's not stimulating me. It's not challenging me, right? Um, and again, they were kind enough to, they were willing and kind enough and big hearted enough to um, recognize that. So we ended up um, deciding to drop out and essentially be homeschooled, right? And it was, I had that opportunity for two years before I essentially drew them crazy. And they're like, Nick, and we just can't take this anymore. We have to go back to school. So I had a, a period of time when I was homeschooled and then I went back to school for uh, 11th and 12th grade. But what ended up happening is, so 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th grade, so what was supposed to be four grades, uh, instead became just two grades for me. So I essentially ended up skipping two years um, in that in that process. Again, I wouldn't, um, th- looking back, I wouldn't recommend it uh, to anyone since it just takes, um, especially on the family, right? On your parents, it just takes an incredible toll because everyone around me follows a, follows a traditional path and you do have feedback from your peers, friends, uh, neighbors, right? society at, at large as to what, what would happen if your kid isn't affiliated with an education institution, right? You know, think, aren't you thinking about his future? And um, I, I think the challenge that my parents definitely had explaining is it's because he doesn't fit. I mean, he's already ahead of his grades. He just doesn't fit. He's not a good um, fit there. So I would say, um, not to point fingers, but the Indian education system, it is very traditional and very rigid and structured. Um, and I'm pretty sure if I was in school here in the US, from what I've seen over the past seven years, being here is I would have been kept challenged because there are just so many extracurricular activities that you can do. And you do have separate tracks, right? For people who can accelerate your tracks, for people who can soak up um, more information. So it was kind of um, because of the system too. And um, uh, that being said, wonderful experience being homeschool those two years like you just have complete creative freedom on what to pursue so I did a lot of electronics picked up some um, programming too and then just read whatever um, in terms of reading and I just read whatever I was very uh, passionate about and then back to school for 11th and 12th grade which again I was like man Counting my days till I got out of there, right? Is it's a little stressful, right? Because you feel like you're in a race against everyone else, right? And it is, um, uh, it is a win-lose scenario. And what I mean by that is, for you to get an admission seat, someone has to lose out, right? So it's not a win-win scenario. 
and that that just creates i think a very um toxic environment a very competitive uh, environment and many people instead of focusing on self improvement they focus on how do i how do i beat um the competition so to speak right how do i become the first rank in my school so all of those things it you know i was definitely not a fan right and that led me to exploring opportunities to study abroad and the other part of it was i had already finished the undergraduate and graduate curriculum of electrical engineering in um, in indian universities wow. and how did uh, you do that did you take classes uh, online or so i was still going to the electronics lab right Uh-huh. So and they had all the course textbooks so from the oh. first semester to undergrad all the way through um graduate school so mm-hmm. i kind of finished all the textbooks finished all the practical um components as well because in this lab they did research but a lot of students came to do their practical lab experiments too like for example in your second semester of your third year you would have a set of experiments to do right um so they came to that lab to do those experiments too so i kind of got exposure to the academic the practical work along with their capstone projects right um of a of undergrad and graduate students so i knew the problem would happen again is once i got into a university in india is i probably wouldn't be challenged so mm-hmm. definitely try um try universities outside of india um where you know you do have more great freedom you can pursue other um research onwards onwards and other extracurricular activities and there were two or, in my high school of class of 120 there were maybe two or three applying for uh, undergraduate admissions abroad i didn't have a high school counselor uh, i only i mean i pretty much followed their lead right like they they were they had counselors right so they paid good money to get those counselors who helped them pre- prepare great essays you know had a schedule with hey this is when you have to take your sat the first time and if the scores are so good the second time and this when you have to take your act so they were prepared they had like a timetable and i just used to talk to them in the high school cafeteria right like hey w- what are you up to now right and he's like yeah i'm actually preparing for the sats like two and a half weeks from now then i went home google what are the sats how do you sign up for them i'm like okay after the sats what do you do it's like yeah you prepare your essays so kind of just my um, high school guidance counselor was my friend um and we were just i just like followed his instructions so to say right um and so my application process definitely could have been much more streamlined and the application itself could have been much stronger but i ended up uh, applying to us universities in the fall of 2013 and just as a result of my poor preparation right got a whole lot of like rejects but did get a few admits and one of them so northeastern university in boston so their admission decision interestingly came to me on valentines day in 2014 right and um, and where i was living back then we didn't even have internet and so i had to go to a nearby I'm pretty sure this is not a thing anywhere in the US but in again developing countries you have the, you have things called cyber cafes so there are these local places in the neighborhood where you know you have PCs connected mm. to the internet and you could pay right um, 20 or 30 rupees so 50 cents an hour to browse the internet so you could print stuff browse your emails send emails or even play computer games so 
you could, so you found a nearby cyber cafe, found a nearby cyber cafe and that it was an admission decision with a full tuition scholarship. So and that was, uh, I, yeah, that changed my life, needless to say. And um, this was, yeah, February of 2014 and university started in August of 2014. So I use that time to still do re research and work in electronics and wrap up any projects that I was um, working on, but a lot delved a lot more into nonprofit work. So a good friend of mine had um, founded a nonprofit in ninth grade, right? And he did the traditional, you know, K through 12 path. Mm -hmm. And um, that nonprofit, it's called um, WISE, and it essentially connects privileged um, high school and college students who have had the opportunity to have a good education and uh, with English as their primary language of instruction and to underprivileged students, right? So many times, especially in India, you do have huge inequality and on a daily basis, you would walk by um, slums, right? So people li living in shanty towns and whatnot and the difference and you'd walk by or drive by in a car and the difference is just so huge, right? And you do become a little desensitized to it, but that exp experience, like working at that nonprofit, going to schools in uh, refugee camps in, in, in a stone quarry, so very, very low income and low resource settings, really drove home the point of uh, social impact uh, to me, right? And essentially using the knowledge that I have to uh, benefit society at large. So those few months of having that deep immersive experience in the nonprofit space, it was mostly in education. So we were conducting workshops, STEM workshops um, at these schools. We are providing these students uh, practical science experiments. Otherwise, they just be stuck memorizing, just rote learning, right? Um, mm -hmm. Just memorizing textbooks. So that was a pretty unique opportunity. And that got me really engaged um, in the field of and starting to think more about social enterprises, social impact and mentorship too. And uh, in the fall of 2014 is uh, when I arrived in the US and to start school at Northeastern, my first time outside of India. And mm. when I landed at Logan, honestly, I, I remember marking. So my mother came to drop me off. I remember marking to her. I, it looks like I stepped into, um, you know, Grand Theft Auto, right? The video game, like the streets were clean. The cars obeyed all the traffic rules. No one honked, right? It, it, uh, it was honestly very, very culture shock, right? So very different from growing up um, in India. And I, I hadn't even seen snow up till that point. And that was very, or I mean, it's 80, 90 degrees throughout the years that trees are green even in December, right? You have two seasons, hot and very hot. Yeah. In Bangalore. And here, yeah, it goes to negative degrees Celsius, you know, zero degrees Fahrenheit. Um, quite took a while to adjust to those um, uh, changes. But yes, I arrived in 2014 for 2014. And at that time, I was uh, 16. And that was kind of my journey to um, Northeastern. Wow. Yeah, that's a really incredible journey. And I love how. 
um, you really took that step to uh, apply abroad. And you mentioned uh, one thing you mentioned that that was really valuable, especially for people my age who are currently going through this really stressful high school process is that um, it's not like it, it is it is like it is it feels like a competition, but you can still find your own your own path and, you know, uh, do things that are a little bit different than everyone else. Um, but before we dive more into the, your nonprofit, since I know you have uh, a lot of great things to tell about that experience as well, and maybe even how uh, it influenced your future like startup experience, um, I just would love to hear more about um, you know your your focus on like this education. And so, uh, would you say that like a main factor in your accelerated education was this like lab experience growing up? It, it was definitely a, a mix of mm. different factors, right? So one was just um, my, just that passion for reading and learning. Mm -hmm. So it kept me reading and learning even in my summer breaks, even in vacation, right? Even when, quote unquote, I didn't have to be mm -hmm. um, reading and learning. So that was one. And the second was definitely exposure to, um, yeah, electronics, the lab. And not only that, to um adults right and like a real work environment mm -hmm. and that uh, to any person and I, i'm just using general definitions here so to any kid right or to any young um, person that definitely matures them very quickly mm -hmm. right is if they don't in that environment i don't think i was ever treated as a kid i was treated as um an adult like given responsibilities ex expected to deliver to certain tasks so that really uh, that kind of uh, mindset right so maturity responsibility I, I did learn that from that um environment and okay. that i also took lessons from that in in my school as well right so whether it's you know very most kids i mean i have a younger brother i see this he, okay. you know he's he's a teenager now and he just goes with the flow right, is whatever comes, whatever is due next week, whatever exams, like next week, um, you're kind of just focused, maybe something a week ahead or two weeks ahead. But working in that lab environment taught me to plan um, semester long, right, or even a year long. And that when I applied it in my school, it, I just got the entire year syllabus. And I was like, okay, if I'm able to finish this in the summer, then I'll have more free time throughout the year. <laughs> so that kind of advanced planning too, which I do think um, kids, um, they're still developing, right? Their brains are still um, developing, but that environment taught me that very early on is how do you plan ahead and how can you set up a schedule, right? And how do you manage time effectively? And how do you deliver? What I think everyone learns is how do you deliver when there's a deadline due? So mm -hmm. crunch time, like work, uh, extra hours. But those were like those were the key valuable skills: is time management, planning in advance. And I could do it more in the lab environment, not so much in school. But delegation, right? Yeah. Is if you're not an expert in something, you know, ask for help or delegate um, the task at hand. But yeah, I don't think you can do that at school very uh, effectively. <laughs> yeah, you can't give physics. You can't give physics for some physics for someone else you learn and write yeah uh, yeah awesome I think there's a lot of great advice 
and uh, in, in why you were talking about that as well, a lot of great advice for high schoolers and people who are trying to develop their skills as well. Um, but if you don't mind giving another piece of advice, I think a lot of listeners may be wondering how they can uh, seek other opportunities as well to, you know, be involved in lab environments, develop these working skills. Um, and so what would your advice be for like how you can seek these opportunities or even create these opportunities for yourself uh, like you might have had when you were younger? I would, uh, the key, the, the piece of advice and is uh, don't be, don't ever be afraid to ask for help, right? Mm-hmm. Or to ask for opportunities is because very few opportunities land in your lap, right? As people are going to come up to you um, and open the, literally hand you an opportunity, right? And even when that usually occurs, it's as a result of other, um, you know, you've established yourself or you've proven yourself in some other field or space, right? And Ellen, you were telling me that your ability to host this podcast came to you, but as a result of other activities that you were doing, right? So if you hadn't put in effort and initiative and done those other activities, this wouldn't have. So usually when people see that they hear that, you know, their friends have received this or done that, um, that's typically the case, you know, they work very hard and created like a brand and identity uh, become known. And that's when those opportunities come in search of them, right? But usually you do have to hustle, right? And you do have to ask for help and essentially create uh, the opportunity. And I say, don't be afraid is, um, there is fear of rejection or fear of failure, right? It exists in uh, everyone. But I would say kids are, um, when we are very young, right? Uh, uh, there's a study which said that a five-year-old asks a hundred questions a day. Whereas when you're in your twenties, it re- reduces to like three or five. So as kids, you're like just so innately curious, but as we maybe become teenagers and young adults, we become more reserved if, if that's the right word. But um, that would be the keys. Just don't be afraid. Uh, just go ask if there's an opportunity available and there are a couple of different ways to do that. One is you could just find areas or topics that you're naturally curious about. Um, in your case, it's Kawasaki disease. In my case, it was electronics. And find where those kind of nodes or centers are, right? Where people are doing cutting-edge pioneering work and where you can probably commute to or you have it's nearby. So there is geographic proximity. So it could be a lab. It could be uh, a university. It could even be a company, right? Doing research work and many other institutions, right? Do research. So first is finding what you're naturally kind of inclined to, what you're more curious about. Uh, I wouldn't call it passion quite yet because we have many of those, right? So just um, finding the things that you're curious about and finding the people who are best in class in your area in those fields. And the third is reaching out to them. And you could do this multiple ways. And the most common way is definitely email. And at least for teenagers, um, a way that might require a little bit more effort would be to create a LinkedIn profile and to reach out to them on LinkedIn. In terms of emails too, most researchers' emails are public, 
And if not, there are tools available online. I'm pretty sure anyone can quickly Google for an email extraction tool and find people's emails, not too um, difficult that. And the third is meeting in person, right? So either you could meet them for the first time in person, either through an introduction. In my case, it was my neighbor. So we did meet uh, regularly. But in that meeting, you do definitely want to make an impression, right? And what we do lack in that first meeting is definitely experience, right? But our asset, I would say, if we have the right attitude, is our teachability, our teachability, our coachability, our willingness to work hard. And if you're able to articulate that in that meeting is, you know, I'm curious about this topic for um, so-and-so reasons. And you might invest some time in training me and equipping me on the, in the beginning, but I'm pretty sure that I could learn and start contributing in a short period of time. But I'd say that's the key differentiating factor is if you are teachable and if you are eager to learn, eager to help, that naivety um, sets us apart and more than compensates for the lack of industry um, experience. And you do, and the reason I said don't ever be afraid is you would have to repeat this process time and time again, right? So if you're going to a different, looking at a different field and opportunity in a different field, you'll have to repeat this. If you're um, in different stages of life, you'll have to repeat this. So that's why I said is, you know, don't ever be afraid to ask uh, for help or even ask for uh, opportunities. Because if you, if you don't, the automatic is a no, right? And if you do, you increase the probability of a yes. So that's the one piece of advice I'd share. That's really valuable advice. And I especially liked what you said about, you know, not having experience because I know that a lot of people, if they think that they don't have enough experience, they don't even try or to ask, like you mentioned, because they're like, oh, well, I'm, I haven't been to college. I don't have all of this, this industry experience. Um, and so they never even think it's a possibility. But like you mentioned, there's a lot of curiosity and, you know, a lot of asking questions um, and just showing people that you're really interested and are willing to work hard. Um, I think that's super, super great advice as well. Um, but yeah, so I, I know you mentioned uh, your, your work in your nonprofit as well and uh, how that gave you a lot of experience and social impact. Um, so I'd love to hear about, I guess, uh, since I know you have launched uh, startups. And so um, where, where did that experience come from? If it was nonprofits or other ways you were able to gain that experience before launching your startup? Yep. So that did come uh, during the uh, during the final year of my high school, really. So between the time that I got my Northeastern University admission, so 2014, many people I, I later found out through that experience were volunteering just for a college, um, uh, for a letter of recommendation to help apply for colleges, right? Again, we, we were happy that they were putting in time and effort. But um, it, it was just interesting to me in terms of the motivation, right? But then I realized that um, in, in order to attract people, right? So if you're doing it, if you're doing something just for the 
purposes on as you know um volunteering or as um for lack of better words as like a social club um then it's fine but as an organization right if you're doing it formally with structure and you do want to create impact you do need to provide incentives to the participants and it took me a while to realize that and that got me thinking into you know as how can we improve the current structure we have how can we improve the education methodology right since i was very very frustrated with the traditional method of education in india and so that led me to conducting an impact assessment of the nonprofits activities too i was fortunate to get a research grant from northeastern and we kind of conclusively showed that our experiential education methodology was way more and using peer to peer um tutoring right uh, with um students in similar age ranges was definitely more effective and impactful than the traditional method of education and that helped the nonprofit actually win two national awards so ended up winning uh, two um uh, awards from times of india as the best nonprofit of the year and another award from the uo chetna um, foundation and the nonprofit also was able to get corporate sponsorship from bosch and from intel for certain projects so overall great experience but um, also taught me also developed my thinking from um, how do you create impact or do service as an individual versus creating impact as an organization and essentially doing service at scale right so how do you multiply your efforts through with structure with incentives with um a methodology with systems and processes and um it was in the summer of 2014 that i really learned that and what that led me to is in 2015 after i came to the us as through the clinton global initiative university i tried we well our team tried this was from 2015 till 2017 for a little over 2 years we tried setting up an apprenticeship program for um, in the technology sector so for software developers from disadvantaged um high schools in inner city cities here in the us right we just found that the tech sector had a gap in talent right and needed more workers more qualified workers and that there were many inner city schools and also schools in rural areas in the us who didn't have a strong stem program and to me coming from india i thought schools in throughout the us were perfect right gold standard uh, everyone had the latest technology and you know running tracks and golf courses so it never even occurred to me about the differences in um in resources in schools in the us and through that experience so from 2015 to 2017 to the uh, clinton global initiative university and with the help of northeastern but again it um taught me a lot especially in terms of creating partnerships and bringing different stakeholders institutions to the table and having them communicate that again taught me a lot about um how do you create social impact right um through organizations and at scale and um at medsics now so my medical device startup all of those learnings definitely learnings lessons 
definitely uh, have are helping me um, a lot right in terms of creating an organization yeah i think this is a great transition to from you know your nonprofit experience to your for profit and your startup that you're currently working on um so i thought it was really cool how uh, your startup was actually founded at a hackathon right yes i know a lot of people participate uh, or many people participate in hackathons but um there's I guess not as many who actually end up successfully launching a company from it. So I'd love to hear more about your founding story and uh, how you were able to create Medsix from this hackathon. Yep. So we founded Medsix in the spring of uh, 2019, and I met my co-founder at. Uh, he's a surgeon, so he's a practicing surgeon in New York City at uh, MIT Hacking Medicine, and uh, it was his pain point that our team came together to solve. So there were six of us, hence the name Med6. But uh, essentially, the surgeon, um, he installed a lot of these on a weekly basis. And I'm actually showing it to Ellen here. Um, but it's a, a, it's a drain. It's a wound drain. And a wound drain, to those of you listening, is it's a sterilized piece of plastic with no inherent sensing capability. So it's essentially a plastic bag but it's attached after abdominal surgeries. So went to a couple of conferences, spoke to many surgeons, nurses, uh, other healthcare professionals, did extensive market research, and also built out our team. So found a few more advisors, all through LinkedIn, uh, who are experts in regulatory quality, in, uh, in microfluidic sensor design. And we also, through that LinkedIn outreach, we also ended up finding a strategic partners or large uh, existing medical device company who could potentially fund us for future work. And in that process, we did work on the technical side as well. We built a benchtop prototype. We ended up filing a patent. Uh, we communicated with a regulatory agency. And then in the fall of 2019, um, September, close to September, started fundraising. And that went um, pretty successfully, but a lot of effort. And um, we, if I remember correctly, I sent out maybe 3,000 LinkedIn messages, got about 600 replies of some kind, passed, this is not for me, um, or not are interested at the current stage. So many different replies. And out of that, got about 60 meetings, 50 no's, but we learned from every no. We improved our pitch deck, our financial model, and various other feedback that we got. And we ended up having a close to six, seven investors in that first round. I'll never forget that day. I think it was December 20th, 2019, when, you know, on I was still working. I still had a job. I took like a bathroom break. I signed what's known as a safe uh, through on my phone, which is the investment document. And at 5.15, I refreshed my Sixes bank account and they had wired the money, right? <laughs> and I just, even till today, right? It just, it just seems, I, it, it's, I, I need to pinch myself because I think it's a very unique, um, it's, this is something very unique, which I believe only happens in, uh, in America where, you know, you, you trust a 21-year-old, right, with a quarter of a million dollars and who just has a vision, right? You trust him. 
um, on his word. And um, with someone who doesn't have a clinical background or medical device industry um, background and, um, you know, speaks with an accent. I didn't, I don't have net, I just came here seven years ago, so I don't have a network here in the US. Yeah, it's a truly uniquely um, American thing, right? So um, each time I think about it, I pinch myself. Because in India, in order to found a business, you need to you need to have collateral, right? You need to mortgage your home, um, your jewels. So, and here people trust you on your word. So integrity is that's the commodity here, which is valued. But and there are milestones, and people do hold you accountable. But just the very fact that if you have a vision, and that there are people willing to take a bet on you and that there are structures in place to enable you to do that. That's what makes this place, this country, truly unique. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that is a phenomenal story. And I was getting excited from it, too. That's amazing how you, you know, through all that outreach and so many rejections, too, so many no's, but then you were able to lead that, uh, get your funding and um, have someone lead that round as well. Um, I think this also goes back to what you said before is that you should really just ask or try to reach out and not be afraid of the no's because it's an automatic no if you don't even try uh, in the first place. Um, but I hope you don't mind me throwing a double question at you right now, since I know you've been both on the founder side of things and also as a mentor. Um, so I guess the first part of this question is what is the most important advice you've received as a founder yourself? And uh, on the flip side, what is the most common advice that you give to startups or the mistakes that startups are making that you usually advise? Uh, that's a very good question. So most important advice that I've received, it's um, definitely, I wouldn't say it's advice that someone's told me, but it comes from observation of other founders and you know, hearing podcasts and reading books that I've seen, but it's uh, perseverance right, is success is not, um, is never overnight. And it's a long road with many ups and downs, right? And um, you do have to be, you always have to be driving for the light, right? So if you're in a tunnel, you always have to be driving for the light and you should never look back and be, and think that, oh man, look at, I've, I've done all this work or, you know, you should, I, for lack of better words, you should you should never stop and throw like a pity party, right? Is you should always be focused on learning, on improving, and driving for the light. And again, this is a very startup founder mindset. So I'm that that, and I'm coming from there, right? Because very often you can look back and just think that, um, it, what's the point, right? So that mindset should never arise. Right, is um, lack of enthusiasm or optimism. So there's a certain, that's why very few people become founders is because you do need to look at the world with rose-colored lenses. Like you do need to be, um, what's um, what's the word? Halu, hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic. I think that's the word. Uh, hallucinogenically optimistic, right? So um, no you, any challenge that comes your way, there is going to be a solution. You never take no for an answer. So it's a different kind of mindset. It does take time to develop, right? Because um, 
most people aren't wired that way as human beings like biologically we are wired to be pessimists right as that's what like a thousand i mean 10000 years ago uh, the pessimist the person who ran away from the line versus going close to a line right is are the people who survived whereas yeah. today we live in much more stable and safe societies so we don't need to rewire our brains to be more optimistic but um, that was a little bit of a long answer but the but it's being perseverant and driving towards the light and having the right attitude at all times so a combination of these things and in terms of what the advice i give to founders is just learning from my experience it's um find big markets to tackle right because there is such a thing as working hard on something which is going to result in a small outcome and there is i mean you, i i am very certain that the grocery store owner down the street works as hard if not harder than me right but um we work on different projects you could say we do we work in different structures in terms of how our company is structured um with technology you have access to leverage right so you can multiply your efforts and your impact so what you work on really really matters and you need to pick the problem that you're solving very well and the next thing that matters is who you work with so you want the best in class talent and sometimes it does work out you could found a company with your high school buddies college buddies and you see plenty of examples out there where that's worked but let's say you are the person that's um driven in an environment you're present it's okay to be a little patient right and find the right co-founder or any given role a right cto or a cmo just be patient learn that function and do that function yourself versus just filling it uh, with someone who you met right or someone just so just you know um so that's something that i'd recommend to founders is what you work on really matters so find a big problem to solve and the second is who you are solving that problem with so build the best in class team and the team's always evolving so just because someone is for at your stage is best in class today doesn't mean they will grow and mature with the company and be best in class. they might you want to help them and empower them to be in 3 5 years from now but you might have to find someone else so you do need to be eventually you need to get good at having those crucial conversations um as well yeah so again this is this uh, this is like general founder advice and the second part of this is specifically advice to founders who are young because when you're building a best in class team you'll have people on your team multiples of your age right not not a few years older maybe the engineers will be a few years older but um your c level your executives your investors will likely be your parents age or even older right so just learning the skills um to handle those relationships is very key yeah yeah i especially love the way you put hallucinogenically optimistic i think that's a very 
great way. You know, think big, but also uh, be be positive and uh, try to aim for those goals. Uh, whether you're like a founder or a student or anything, um, try to work on problems that are big and dream big. Um, but I'm sure we could keep on going and talk for a really long time. But I think that's really great advice to leave off the listeners with and very inspirational messages for people to be looking towards their own problems. I know I was writing down a few things that I, I'm going to keep pursuing and, you know, uh, writing down a few opportunities that I think I will aim for now after listening to your advice and your story. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Nikki, for coming on. And I, there's so much, so much great advice in there. I'll need to take a few moments after to digest all of this. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time to share your really incredible story. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. And if anyone would like to reach out to me, um, you can find me first name, last name on LinkedIn. And just um, should just add a note that saying that um, you heard um, this podcast. And the other way to reach out to me is definitely through email. So first name dot last name at uh, gmail.com. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll make sure to link down below information and your social media is down in the show notes as well for anyone who would like to reach out. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for all the listeners to tuning into this episode of Delta X podcast. I'll also link down below the newsletter, which you can subscribe to to get these podcasts every two weeks. Uh, but thank you so much. And we'll see you guys in the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Delta X Podcast with Ellen Shu. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.